Good evening, folks, and welcome back on this Saturday, the 10th day of September, 2022. I'm your host, Mark Hall, and let's start things off this evening with a look first at, uh, well, the old follow the money rule. You may even remember that the love of it is the root of all evil. And, of course, nowadays, since we haven't had real money for at least a couple of generations, it really might be the love of currency, the fiat kind that they love to print, that is the root of so much of the evil in the world anyway. And on that score, I'll have to start off by saying it really was a weird week in the financial markets, too. Because there's so much churn that you can tell things are really poised on the edge of something, probably a huge collapse. But the question is when and in what direction will it go first? And I'll come back to some aspects of that. But ultimately, it means, wow, you probably just want to step back and watch the carnage. No, that's certainly not intended as investment advice, but it might be a word to the wise. So let's start with this news from the European Central Banksters, which have now raised interest rates by a full three-quarter percentage points to one and one-quarter percent, which is the largest increase in the Banksters' history. As Zero Hedge puts it, now we have the answer. After lots of hemming and hawing, early Thursday morning, the ECB hiked its deposit rate by 75 basis points to 75 basis points from zero, the first time European rates are positive in over a decade since July 2012. <laughs> and they note that, oh, get this, the Governing Council's future policy rate decisions will continue to be data-dependent and follow a meeting-by-meeting meeting approach, unquote, which means basically we don't have a clue what we're going to do until we get there. They describe this move, though, as a major step that's front-loading the transition towards a more neutral policy stance. Bloody bloody blah though, they do say this is intended to further dampen demand, as if a 1,000% inflation and energy prices won't do some of that. And in short, concludes Zero Hedge, the ECB is hiking not only into a recession, but a full-blown depression, and they know it, even if some disagree. Hal Turner's website does a pretty good job of summarizing it succinctly this way. Sadly for them, this is the only tool remaining in their financial toolbox, and it won't work. Prices are rising out of control in Europe due to energy hyperinflation, which the central banksters have zero control over. Usually, he notes, remember, central banks raise interest rates to uh, supposedly halt inflation. But by raising interest rates, consumers have to pay more interest on their personal debts, so they cut spending, and that may reduce inflation. But now... It's government, not consumers, who hold the lion's share of the debt. And rest assured, government will continue to spend, 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 because they can print it, no matter the price of their debt. Yeah, that does have other effects, though, folks, and hint, it's not reducing inflation. Ultimately, he suggests, and this is kind of a no-brainer, the euro will lose more and more of its value, and it looks like Europe is headed directly headlong into a hyperinflationary collapse. They brought this upon themselves, shot themselves in the foot, in other words, reloaded, and have kept on firing by cutting off their own energy supplies. From there, I'm going to go to a story also from Zero Hedge, and courtesy of Nomura's respected analyst, Charlie McElligot, that I almost didn't do, because it's way inside baseball, and more than a bit, super trader technical analyst heavy. You can't see the charts anyway, but uh, I think you'll get the picture. Just stay with me for a minute here. After yesterday's melt-up in U.S. equity markets, it began, and that would be referring to midweek at this point, which we're also seeing again this morning after the Powell dip, 
Yeah, just shortly after Jackson Hole, Powell this time spoke at the Cato Institute and seems to have raised some hackles. Anyway, their story begins with this quote. Sometimes there's a chart that just blows your hair back. In 22 years of doing this, says the analyst, nothing stands out like this one. Last week, institutional traders bought $8.1 billion worth of put options. In other words, they're betting the market's fixing to take a swirly. But they bought less than $1 billion in calls. And that, says sentiment trader, is three times more extreme than it was back in 2000. 2008. Meanwhile, Nomura's Charlie McElligot has been ringing the bell on this for the last week, and he adds some additional color this morning, summarizes Tyler Durden. And here you got to stay with me, folks, through the jargon, but trust me, we'll get to the point. Yesterday's very short, gamma-looking, explosive move higher in stocks was prompted by two factors, he says. Number one, the magnitude of the absolutely biblical surge in negative dollar delta associated with not just hot index to ETF options, as downside puts pick up delta and calls rot on the spot sell-off, but also with number two, single stock premium spent on puts bots to open an expression of just how much kindling has been built up, which was then risking an impulsive spot equities rally due to set options positioning squeeze. And bottom line, the entire world of hashtag effin nitwit, I think that's how you pronounce that, and volume twit is absolutely foaming at the mouth over the last 24 hours. But what's the bottom line? Well, admittedly, it's kind of tough to sort through, but it does look like something is building up pressure and seems to be about to, uh, well, explode one way or another. Now, here your host will comment about some of the analysis I've seen over the last few weeks or even months, and certainly things that I've been talking about and knowing were going to happen, just not exactly precisely when, for years at this point. Courtesy of what's called Austrian economics, you can't print forever. Eventually the chickens come home to roost. It's also biblical economics, which says it's a dishonest weight and measure, and therefore it's an abomination, and that means it isn't going to last, but will be cursed. Both basically are pointing in the same direction. And the lesson of history echoes the same tune. Fiat currencies inevitably always collapse. The dollar is the biggest debt bubble in human history and the biggest fiat currency ever, too. It's no different. The question again, when and how? And essentially what all of the Austrian economists are suggesting is, ultimately, we know where it ends. But first, and you've heard this analogy, I've used it a number of times, the dollar is the best house, for example, in a really bad neighborhood. It's really ugly, except when you compare it to all the other fiat currencies and so forth. And almost universally, they've been predicting the boom, maybe a really big one, a lot of churn, if you will, before the bust. For now, and who knows how much longer, the dollar is still used for international settlements. People in America have to pay Biden's new tax bill, or else the 80,000 or so IRS agents may come and blow you away. They're scared. Okay, well, actually, that's just one example among literally millions. It boils down to, for now at least, it's called a safe haven. If people are really worried about a collapse, they go to the thing that they think at least ought to be the safest, even if it's a really ugly, rickety boat. And I kind of like that analogy because for a while, like now, they pile in. Got to have dollars. Need them. Bid them up. Bid them up. The dollar is breaking new highs on international markets up until the boat sinks. And that's one of the things Nomura's Charlie McElligot was talking about. A whole lot of churn, volatility in the market and the various indexes that measure it. Oh, yeah. And remember that comment about the huge number of puts that various institutions were buying? They know the wheels are fixing to come off the wagon, and they're making a bet that it's going to be real soon. 
And you know what that does? The huge volume of purchases of puts means that the price of those goes up, even though they have a very limited shelf life, which will eventually drive them way down unless the market collapses just in time. The problem with put options, folks, is you make your bets, and if it doesn't happen before the time runs out, you lose it all. And would you believe that when there's that much money on the table, there's real economic motivation to uh, make things happen or not, either right before or most usually right after options expiration. If you've heard the term triple or quadruple witching, that's what we're talking about. Oh, yeah, and that's where the expression too big to fail and especially too big to jail is really important to remember. From there, I'll go to just a couple of comments from another piece aggregated via Zero Hedge from the Market Ear entitled, Hey, Remember Bitcoin? And it begins by referring to dollar debasement and asking, do you recall when the BTC pundits or Bitcoin were selling us the dollar debasement logic? Well, it worked for a little while, but boy, oh boy, did they get the dollar wrong. They show a chart and then ask, are people still dreaming about Bitcoin at 65,000 bucks? It does look like the move from the hottest to the most boring asset in the world went pretty quick. The huge negative trend line remains intact. The 100 and 200 day moving averages are sloping down. We're basically approaching must-hold levels in Bitcoin, but not even that sounds too exciting these days. Because Bitcoin, they write, never was an inflation hedge. It just looked like it. Charts follow. Basically, it seems to be, no, it was never an inflation hedge. It was a speculation, and maybe even a bubble. Which means their biggest problem continues. Do you remember the days when people were selling the institutional story where the big players would come in and change all of this space? Bitcoin inflows, though, remain depressed. Retail's obviously not enough to revive the Bitcoin bull. They need some serious institutions to get involved. Because little companies, and even little countries like El Salvador, just aren't enough. And now Big Brother Biden and his March Executive Order on Responsible Development of Digital Assets, or CBDCs, Executive Order 14067, if you're curious, is another CCP-style great leap forward towards the mark of the beast with more of the totalitarian usual. Mandates. Changing the currency. A digital dollar, but oh, so Big Brother controllable. And if you've read Revelation and the Mark of the Beast, you kind of have a pretty good idea of exactly what they're talking about. There'll be a digital future, all right. It'll have Communist Chinese Party-style social media scores involved. And without the right kind of score, not only will you not be able to tweet, much less buy a gun, you probably won't even be able to put gas in your car because they don't want you to have that anyway. And all of this draconian totalitarian control you can expect to be backed up by, guess what, an army of new IRS agents and other SS and Gestapo types, all making sure that if you don't do the right thing, and they'll make sure you know darn well what that is, you don't get to do anything, even eat. Now, we'll come back to that in just a minute with a bit of background in case you missed it first time around. But first, I want to do a couple of related stories that are new today that help to flesh out why all of this is coming to a head. It was good while it lasted, says John Ng for King World News. All hell is breaking loose, but the worst is yet to come, he concludes. And yeah, it was good while it lasted. But now the golden age of near zero inflation, at least officially, and interest rates is over. And we're paying the price for living in a fool's paradise since money, or remember, folks, we haven't actually had money for decades and decades at this point, currency anyway, is no longer 
longer free. All that's now changing. The new economic reality, some might even say the Great Reset, has been ushered in. And as the pandemic exposed the vulnerability that was built into the global supply chains, the Russia, Russia, Russia invasion exposed the scarcity, at least if somebody else controls them and you've shot yourself in the foot, of energy and materials. Escalating prices, says Ng, have created a cost-of-living crisis ahead of the political and social agenda. Inflation is up everywhere. Your host will add again, by design. And after fooling themselves and the public on successfully wrestling inflation to the ground, <laughs> yeah, are you believe in that, central banksters are now riding to the rescue and lifting interest rates to subdue inflation. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. Well, or maybe drive the economy into oblivion. So they can build back better? No, don't you believe it. So they can control it all. Austrian economist and former congressman and presidential candidate Dr. Ron Paul has a piece up on his website midweek entitled, The Federal Reserve Wants You Fired. No doubt he begins they were troubled by July's decline in the U.S. unemployment rate to 4.5% and the increase in job openings to 11.2 million because the Fed's strategy for reducing the historic price inflation now plaguing the economy, caused, of course, by the Fed's unprecedented lower zero interest rate policies, basically, folks, money printing like there's no tomorrow, because when they get their way, there won't be. Anyway, says Dr. Paul, it's to increase unemployment in order to decrease consumer spending. And he notes that in his Jackson Hole, Wyoming speech on monetary policy, Fed Chair Jerome Powell reiterated his commitment to increasing unemployment, or as he puts it, softening the labor markets. He's correct, though, that reducing price inflation is urgent. He's also correct that doing so will increase unemployment and slow economic growth, as if it needed more slowing. The Fed's efforts to bring down inflation, says Dr. Paul, by increasing interest rates will also make it harder for average Americans to obtain home mortgages, purchase a car. Of course, there are a lot of other reasons why they're going to find that almost impossible, or even pay their utility bills. Those hardest hit by the Fed's softening of labor markets are also the primary victims of Fed-created price inflation, which, says Dr. Paul, and not for the first time, demonstrates the insanity and cruelty of the fiat money system, which enriches the elites while impoverishing the masses. And remember, part of the reason is crony capitalists and the financial elite benefit from the Federal Reserve's money printing or creation operation because they're the first ones to get their hands on the new stuff before everybody else figures out it's been debased. And now he notes, average Americans are seeing a double whammy. They suffer both from Fed-created inflation and the Fed's alleged, at least, attempts to rein in that Fed-created price inflation. And remember, that's why they need their army of new armed IRS agents to enforce the Federal Reserve's new money regime. Dr. Paul, good Austrian economist that he is, and I know he understands scripture as well, notes that the fix is exactly what the Bible talks about. Gold and silver, real precious metals. You could even say honest weights and measures as legal tender. Meanwhile, though, the signs of the impending collapse based on the fiat that won't last forever were all over the place this week. Let's pick up a few of these, more or less chronologically, starting with over the weekend, where people are beginning to realize, in no uncertain terms, that their versions of Big Brother want them to freeze to death. Real soon now, as soon as the weather turns cold. And it's certainly happening in the Czech Republic. And they at least have the wisdom and the hindsight of history to look back on. 
I have a friend who was born there pointed this story out to me over the weekend, and at least now it's starting to get some alternative media anyway coverage. The winner of discontent began Rod Dreyer for the American Conservative that could bring down governments, hopefully it will, folks, began over the weekend with a massive demonstration in the Czech capital of Prague, where about 70,000 people filled Wenceslas Square, According to police estimates, some carrying signs denouncing the country's membership in the European Union and NATO military alliance. Massive check inflation, and obviously they're not alone, driven by surging housing costs and, of course, spiking out-of-control energy prices, currently the highest since 1993. The central banksters are forecasting it to peak around 20% over coming months, was dismissed by the socialist Czech prime minister as all of it a conclave of Russian sympathizers and dupes. Is any of this starting to sound familiar, folks? Well, except for the part of masses of people waking up to it. The story says, through friends in Romania, that that country, too, is experiencing a similar uh, anger awakening. And if you saw the stories out of the German government over the last few days, it basically boils down to, we could care less if the German citizenry is freezing and they die in the streets this winter. Your opinions don't count for squat with us. We're going to support Ukraine right down to the last German. Here's a quick related story, courtesy of Zero Hedge and John Cody of Remix News, that says German companies are increasingly unable to access energy supplies on the market or what's left of it. And as energy dries up, the German economy will simply stop running. According to their version of the Chamber of Commerce, the DIHK, or in German, the Association of German Chambers of Industry and Commerce. Their president told R&D Newsroom that more and more companies are telling us they no longer have a supply contract for electricity or gas at all. The tap is turned off in the truest sense of the word. But without energy, no economy can run. And furthermore, energy prices, it says, have reached a level that threatens the very existence of many companies. Just this week, German toilet paper company Hackel filed for bankruptcy, with the owner citing unsustainable energy and materials costs as the primary factor. Meanwhile, the Wall Street Journal reports that European steel, which requires massive amounts of cheap natural gas to run at all, is slashing production and facing, um, to put it mildly, severe financial headwinds. Other sectors, like chemical production, agriculture, and automation, are all facing unprecedented hurdles as the energy crisis continues to grip and literally destroy Europe. About 10% of companies have already reduced or even interrupted production, while 25% are either considering relocating shares or parts of production and jobs abroad, where costs are probably cheaper and there might even be energy than they are in Germany. Meanwhile, Putin and Russia are no doubt laughing at people, threatening war by committing suicide. And it's not just energy, of course. The global fertilizer crunch, also exacerbated by the idiocy over there, threatens to starve the planet, as prices are too high for a lot of planters ahead of next planting season, to the point where Maximo Torero, chief economist for the UN's Food and Agriculture, sick organization, told Bloomberg News that elevated fertilizer prices could decrease global grain production by over 40% come next planting season. Rice is going to take a big hit, too, and since that's a staple grain that feeds half of humanity, there might be fallout from that one as well. So, hey, folks, the evil is just getting rolling. And finally, there's this, and ultimately, I think it connects quite a few dots. This comes from Haley Zaremba via oilprice.com, also aggregated via Zero Hedge. And it's about copper, which, of course, like just about everything else, could be derailed by the, I'll say it, planned idiocy, resulting in a looming copper shortage. Writes Nathaniel Bullard, Bloomberg NEF's chief content officer, think of copper as a common carrier, so to speak, of 
decarbonization. What idiocy. Because, you know, it carries electricity. Now, where does the electricity come from? Oh, let's ignore that for now and just talk about whether it can get to where the world controllers tell you it needs to go. Buller says it's literally the wiring that connects the present to the future. And even though the communists will try to get you to believe that renewable energies are infinitely renewable with no use of finite resources, that's one of the bigger whoppers on the planet, folks. The reality, it says, is that solar panels, wind turbines, energy transmission, lines and infrastructure, batteries for energy storage, and, of course, motors and windings in electric cars and bicycles, everything relies on metals that are not infinitely sourceable. And, oh, yeah, they require a whole lot of energy to mine, smelt, move, and then ultimately refine and produce into usable wire and windings. And lithium for batteries is just part of that equation. An EV, for example, which probably aren't going to be able to charge anyway, especially not in California if it's hot, requires two and a half times as much copper as an internal combustion engine vehicle, while meanwhile, solar and offshore wind need two and five times, respectively, more copper per megawatt of installed capacity than power generated using natural gas or coal, both of which are at least as clean as all the other stuff that they're not telling you about. Copper production is already struggling to keep up with booming demand. S&P projects that current levels will double by the year 2035 to a whopping 50 million metric tons. That'll get even worse by 2050, and that amounts to more than all the copper consumed in the entire world during the almost century and a quarter between the turn of the 20th century and now. So it's true, says the story, the looming copper shortage as a result of all the other idiocy they kind of tend to pile on threatens to completely derail the so-called clean energy transition. According to a recent report from S&P Platts, if copper shortfalls follow projected trends and, hey, look around, climate goals will be short-circuited and remain out of reach. In other words, folks, once again, ugly facts intrude on the nirvana of the nutcases. I think the reality, though, is becoming a bit more clear. What they really want, the way they're going to get to their true goals, is by forcing so many people to freeze and starve, especially if they won't take the Zyklon B injection. Let's move on, then, from real science to pure evil. This comes from the Biden Fuhrer's top COVID advisor. And guess what he wants you to do? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Ashish Jha. No, folks, not Goldfinger. He looks like a good guy by comparison. Who now says it's not enough you take one Zyklon B injection. He wanted people to take their flu shot and their COVID poison poke all at one time. Get this. Here's the headline from the Daily Mail. Quote, God gave us two arms, one for the flu shot and the other one for the COVID shot, says the White House's poison poke pusher in their plans to coerce people into getting annual shots. The poison poke, quote, should be as routine as the flu shot. This next item is more stupid pet tricks from the White Whorehouse. Corinne Jean-Pierre snapped back at Fox News' Peter Ducey, who dared to ask her a question that exposes the level of their not just idiocy, but evil, and no small amount of hypocrisy on top of it. Says the story, White House Press Secretary Sick, Corinne Jean-Pierre, shared a testy exchange with Fox News reporter and actual journalist Peter Ducey on Tuesday after he dared to ask her if she believes that Donald Trump stole the 2016 election. 
Now, remember, of course, how the Biden Fuhrer has been saying anybody that dares to believe any election could possibly be stolen, especially his, is some kind of a MAGA Republican, probably deserving of death. But in this case, Ducey was pressing Jean-Pierre amid GOP-led outrage, they say, over Biden's repeated attacks on those MAGA Republicans, the pro-Donald Trump faction of the party, who they say, get this, folks, believe the ex-president's lies that the 2020 race was stolen from him. Oh, yes, how dare they? Statistical impossibilities, 2,000 mules, and tons of actual evidence be damned. But he did point to her prior comments, suggesting that, no, it was Trump who stole the 2016 election from the anointed one, Hillary Clinton herself. Oh, yeah, and she also cast doubt on GOP Governor Brian Kemp's narrow win in Georgia during the next election in 2018. But Jean-Pierre blasted Ducey's comparison as, quote, ridiculous. Maybe because she realizes that it was actually Hillary who tried to steal it from Trump and couldn't get away with what they managed to do in 2020. And you know they're not about to admit anything of that sort. But if there's any good news this week, folks, it's in the form of truth that just keeps oozing out of the pus-filled swamp in spite of their satanic efforts. And if you think I'm kidding, check out the pictures online of the tats of the guy the Biden fear just appointed to be the official White House National Monkeypox Deputy Director. He looks like something out of the Omen, part 666. Well, we'll pick up on lies being revealed right after the bottom of the hour break. Stay with us. Welcome back now to the second segment for this evening. I'm your host, Mark Hall, and we'll begin this one with the passing after a brief illness of the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth II, at the age of 96. The British believe that she's the second longest reigning monarch in world history. She ascended to the throne of England in 1952 when her husband, King George VI, died of cancer, making her son now King Charles III. From there, let's depart from our usual synopsis of the week and go instead to one of the big recurring stories that's been going on for weeks now, if not actually years. The intended mass murder of hundreds of millions, maybe billions of people if they get away with it. Let's start with this update on information we already knew, but wow, it just keeps getting worse from the Epoch Times. Death claims for working age adults under group life insurance policies have spiked well beyond not only expected levels last summer and fall, but unbelievably high statistically incredible levels, according to data from 20 of the top 21 life insurance companies in the United States. Death claims for adults aged 35 to 44 
were 100% higher than expected in July, August, and September of 2021. Hey, guess what happened not long before that? According to a report from the Society of Actuaries, which analyzed 2.3 million death claims submitted to life insurance firms. Bad as that is, the data is especially dramatic for younger people who didn't generally die from or even die with COVID-19. For people aged 34 and younger, the number of excess non-COVID deaths was higher than those even pretending to be related to COVID, says the data. During the third quarter of last year, deaths in the 25 to 34 age bracket were 78% higher than expected, and for people aged 45 to 54, 80% higher. And as Scott Davison, the CEO of One America, who was the first to bring the Zyklon B connection to light, whether it was intentional or not, observed concerning these damning numbers. These are the highest death rates in the history of the life insurance business, and an increase in mortality of just 10% would constitute a literally 1 in 200 year catastrophe, what statisticians call a three sigma event. And this, folks, is light years beyond that. So guess what any honest observer would strongly suspect? It is, of course, not just the communist, socialist, Fourth Reich United States that's been lying to people outright, censoring them, and then literally killing them with disinformation and, of course, bioweapons to boot. The socialist state of Israel doesn't exactly have clean hands either. A piece from Stephen Kirsch's newsletter over the weekend says proof that Israel did, in fact, although it was way late to the party, find serious safety problems with the not-vaccines, supposedly, for COVID-1984, and then did what, well, Big Brother everywhere seems to love to do, deliberately covered it up. They didn't even start to gather safety data until a year in to the mandated vaccine program. When they gathered six months of data, he noted, and discovered that the vaccines really weren't safe, what did they do? Yeah, you know it. They lied to the whole world about it. Says Kirsch, this is the most important article I've written to date, and the single most important on his substack, among over 700 at this point. And it should, he says, bring down the house of cards if there's just one honest person in a position of authority left in the whole world. That's, at best, TBD. Key facts in a nutshell. The Israeli Health Authority knew the vaccines were harming people. The side effects of the vaccine are neither mild nor short-term. In fact, 65% of the neurological cases that mentioned the duration said the symptoms are all ongoing. Furthermore, The studies that they did do established causality. The side effects were, in fact, caused by the vaccines. And that's something he notes that no one else has at least claimed they've been able to establish before because they collected what was called rechallenged data, which most systems like VAERS do not do. They don't know, though, how serious the harm is or was because they only looked at the data for the top five categories. And cardiovascular issues was at number six. So they've still only looked at a fraction of the data in spite of coming to conclusions that they felt they really needed to hide. The researcher says the fourth bullet point don't even know the prevalence of these serious side effects because they were just provided with the numerator, not the denominator. In other words, very similar to what VAERS does. The Israeli authorities deliberately covered up these safety issues. They hid it from the world, issuing a false report, essentially saying, quote, there's nothing new to see here, folks. Move along, move along. And the only good news in all of this, says Kirsch, is that Israel protected Palestinians from getting this very unsafe vaccine which was, in kind of an underhanded way, almost humane of them, in hindsight. But as of September 4th, in other words, Labor Day weekend, no one's being held accountable, and everyone is ignoring the bombshell story. There's a press blackout on coverage in Israel. Kirsch says none of them would even reply when he contacted him about the story. 
they even refuse to look at the evidence. Nobody in Israel is being held accountable. And in the nationwide medical community, no one is speaking out about the corruption, except for those that have already been blacklisted and deep-sixed. The worldwide waste stream media, likewise, is continuing to do what they do, and we've been talking about the reasons why. And further, he says, no public official, public health official, or waste stream media anywhere in the world is even calling for an investigation. Nobody wants to see the original expert report, and nobody wants to see the safety data they gathered. There's an old saying, folks, among liars and lawyers, certainly including politicians, but again, maybe I repeat myself, don't ask the question if you already know the answer, or worse still, don't want anyone else to hear it. Let's shift gears to another aspect of the same problem. Do you still know anybody, folks, who's stupid enough to go out and take yet another Zyklon B booster injection? Here's one from the Epoch Times that says, A study, in this case by three Italian surgeons, analyzed blood from 1,006 people who developed symptoms after they were, uh, well, you know what, enough duped, I guess is a polite word, after they were duped into taking a Pfizer-BioNTech or Moderna mRNA modification injection, and they found that 94% of those people have, quote, aggregation of erythrocytes and the presence of particles of various shapes and sizes of unclear origin, unquote, one month after getting their Zyklon B injection. The study then goes on to call them graphene family superstructures. Erythrocytes, in case you're curious, are a type of red blood cell that, at least when it's allowed to do its job, carries oxygen and carbon dioxide. Quote, what seems plain enough is that metallic particles resembling graphene oxide and possibly other metallic compounds have been included in the cocktail of whatever the manufacturers have seen fit to put in these so-called mRNA vaccines. And the authors do put it in quotes in the study's discussion and conclusions. The study was released in the August 12th edition of the International Journal of Vaccine Theory, Practice, and Research, and basically it represents an even larger sample of people confirming what other studies have demonstrated, like one from Korea recently entitled Four Materials in Blood Samples of Recipients of COVID-19 Vaccines. And, of course, doctors like Sherry Tenpenny, who's been ahead of the curve in vaccine adverse reactions and believes that these metallic structures could be related to the strange clots that embalmers have been finding in corpses that they treat around the country since the poison poke pandemic. She told the Epic Times, quote, whatever's actually found to be in the shots, whether the components are graphene, aluminum, crystalline amyloid, disintegrated fibrin, highly charged nanotech particles, or something else, the disruption in the blood demonstrated on these slides is devastating and irrefutable, as are the corresponding histories of the patients involved. Oh, and by the way, of the 1,006 cases that they studied of people with symptoms, only 58 of them showed a completely normal hematological picture via microscopic analysis. In our experience as clinicians, they added, these mRNA injections are very unlike traditional vaccines, and their manufacturers need, in our opinions, to come clean about what's actually in the injections and why it's there, unquote. There's a very much related story, courtesy of Ethan Huff and Natural News, about how embalmers continue to find clots, this time foot-long clots in dead bodies of, what else, the fully vaccinated. The bodies, it begins, just keep on piling up, many of them loaded with clots that are sometimes more than a foot in length. Trouble is, they're not really what you might call conventional blood clots. Embalmers all around the world have seen a sharp uptick in fibrous and rubbery clotting ever since Operation Warp Speed to the grave, we might now have to add. 
was fully launched. Fully vaccinated bodies, it says, are reportedly having to be dredged of these clots, which don't appear to even be made from blood. Said Mike Adams, the health ranger, we've tested one of the clots from embalmer Richard Hirschman via ICPMS, and we also tested side-by-side live human blood from an unvaccinated person. What sets these clots apart from blood clots is that they're mostly devoid of minerals such as iron, potassium, and magnesium. Were these actual blood clots, then they'd have high levels of these minerals. We're told some of the clots being pulled out of people's bodies are even more than a foot long, in some cases running the entire leg of an individual person's leg. And that, folks, is a lot of clotting. And certainly, says the story here, no joking matter, when considering the sheer number of people out there who are still alive and have these things, whether they know it or not, growing inside of them. Said Hirschman to the Epic Times on their story, prior to 2020 or 21, we would have probably seen somewhere between 5 to 10% of the bodies that we would embalm having blood clots. Now, though, 70% or more of the dead bodies are clotted. Quote, we're familiar with what blood clots are, and we've had to deal with them over time. For me to embalm a body without any clots, kind of like how it was in the day prior to all of this stuff, well, he said it's rare. The exception now is to embalm a body without clots. Wade Hamilton, cardiologist with an understanding of clots, told the Times that the lack of magnesium, potassium, and iron in the clot samples suggests that they're, quote, not the usual post-mortem clots. In fact, he said, there was no blood flow in these vessels. These structures raised but did not totally answer some interesting questions. The combination of the low electrolytes and novel, very strong string-like structures suggests that these areas where these string-like structures are seen in the blood vessels did not receive circulation. They're not normal post-mortem findings, according to experienced embalmers bent on obtaining total body vascular access from one side, which, because of the unusual clots, they were unable to do. He went on to suggest the structures could at least partially be composed of spike proteins that unfolded and formed a, quote, different configuration. Which brings us now to today's Civil War 2.0 update. It seems that over the long Labor Day weekend, a lot of people who didn't bother to watch the Biden Fuhrer declare war on at least half of America late last week had a chance to at least hear about it or maybe even watch part or all of the abomination. After calling those who believe that America needs to be made great again, quote, a threat to the very soul of this country... As President Trump pointed out, making America great again would nominally be something you'd think most people would be in favor of, unless, of course, their real goal is to destroy it completely and utterly. The Biden regime seems to be doubling down. Again, why is that a surprise? And the polarization seems to be stepping up. No doubt exactly as intended. This morning, Steve Watson put out a piece entitled, Everyday Americans Respond to the Fuhrer Calling Them a, quote, Threat to the Very Soul of This Nation, saying things like, but not limited to, Quote, I'm a middle-aged teacher. I teach low-income children in the worst neighborhood in my area. I raise seven children, put myself through school while raising the first two alone. I am a threat to the very soul of this nation. Here's another. I'm a retired Marine with 26 years of service. I volunteer with Habitat for Humanity and at my local church. Married to the same woman for 35 years, I raise cows and chickens and wear Hawaiian print shirts. I am a threat to the very soul of this nation. Another one says, I have to... uh Squeeze all my evil doings in between caring for my elderly mom, helping with my grandkids, participating in my church and community choir, and being a wife and mom. It's a struggle, but I manage. I, too, am apparently a threat to the soul of this nation. And finally, this one. 
I'm an RN in an NICU, natal intensive care unit. I help save little lives. I'm raising my teen grandson. I go to the gym to try and keep myself healthy. I play music and sing in my church choir. I like to garden. I, apparently, am a threat to the very soul of this nation. From there, I want to go to some observations from one of my favorite constitutional leftists, because, well, there are so few of them, and it's certainly fun to see one who gets it, at least sometimes. This is from Sunday's... This is from Sunday's New York Post column by Professor Jonathan Turley. And the Biden viewers, I'm going to call it this, no, not I have a dream, but I have a nightmare from hell speech. And it's about destroying the soul of a nation. That Philadelphia speech that was used to desecrate Independence Hall has, he says, produced sharply different responses from the media. On the criminally negligent network, it was praised as, get this, folks, a rallying cry for patriots. How about Bolsheviks or maybe brown shirts? On conservative sites, says Turley, it was denounced as hateful and divisive, which is kind of obvious. But he says this, but for many of us, the optics were a glaring distraction, what with the intense red background and prominently placed Marines, framing the, I'll say it, marionette-in-chief. The use of the Marines and the Marine band, says Professor Turley, raised concern among some of us. Given the clearly political propaganda, a purpose of the speech. Indeed, the networks did not view the speech as an address to the nation and refused to give the White House primetime slots. And while the lying press secretary for the White House, Karine Jean-Pierre, assured the media, and this is the proof you're looking for, folks, it's not a political speech. It was, says Professor Turley, unabashedly political, given calls to get out the vote and to direct attacks against MAGA Republicans and especially Donald Trump. That again raised the legal questions over the use of Marines in such a speech. Even CNN managed to flag the concern over the use of the Marines, and CNN White House Chief Correspondent Caitlin Collins stated that it was obvious that it was, quote, a very political speech. And all I can add to that is, duh, do you think? The optics of the speech that Professor Turley instantly became a source of internet chatter, what with the weird red background that made the uh, faux president look like he was giving a stump speech from Dante's Inferno. Indeed, it almost had that High Chancellor Adam Sattler look from V for Vendetta. And if you haven't seen the memes, folks, showing that comparison, or, for example, the variety of memes with A-B pictures of uh, the Biden Fuhrer and the other Fuhrer, Adolf, and I've seen literally dozens of pretty good ones that look like that was exactly what he was aiming for, you're probably not paying attention. Turley goes on to note that the comparison with V for Vendetta didn't end with just the optics. And others are currently suggesting, plausibly as it turns out, and no shortage of evidence, that that was exactly what the Biden Fuhrer was looking for. Here's a headline from Stephen Stanford in the All News Pipeline. Raging madman Joe Biden was watching old newsreels of Hitler and the Third Reich before his declaration of war upon America. Even using, and he's not alone in observing this because everybody got it, Third Reich color schemes. Red, white, and black. And he puts it in the form of a pictorial essay showing a whole lot of those memes, comparisons, and, uh, yeah, undeniable parallels. Still, though, says Professor Turley, it was the use of those Marine guards that most stood out to him, framing the uh, president sick as he declared Trump supporters to be a threat to democracy. And, of course, not only enemies, but a threat to the very soul of this nation, whatever this nation now means. Even CNN couldn't miss this part. It was obviously political, as Collins said, a full frontal attack on Biden's political opponents.
But, notes Professor Curley, the United States, or at least it used to, has long drawn a line between the work of federal employees in public service and the use of such employees for political purposes. The Hatch Act was passed in 1939 to curtail the political activities of civilian federal employees, and the Marine Corps itself expressly forbids personnel from being used or even participating in such political events. And here he quotes them. Active duty members will not engage in partisan political activities. Achtung, unless it is for the Biden Fuhrer. Und all military personnel will avoid the inference, wow, that their political activities imply or appear to imply DOD sponsorship, approval, or endorsement of a political candidate, campaign, or cause, unquote. Other services, too, he says, have drawn a bright line against such appearances. Army officials, for example, stress that their rules bar such involvement because, quote, actual or even perceived partisanship could undermine the legitimacy of the military profession and department, unquote. And who are we kidding here? Then he quotes Department of Defense Directive 1344.10 and the long list of prohibited involvement in political events, which include, well, basically exactly what the Biden Fuhrer just shoved down Americans' throats. The rules also expressly bar the wearing of uniforms at such political speeches, saying the wearing of the uniform by service members is prohibited during or in connection with furthering political activities, private employment, or commercial interests, or when there's an inference of official sponsorship for the activity or interest that may be drawn. I guess, unless that means the inference is that they're declaring war on well over half of America. While there may be gray areas for a president who's necessarily accompanied by members of the military, admits Professor Turley, and drawing such a line may often be difficult. And yes, even violations of the Hatch Act have been routinely brushed aside by presidents, far less scurrilous than this scumbag. Still, he says, it's the silence of many in the media on this that's interesting. The Marines were used as virtual nutcracker props for a political speech. And remember when the media overwhelmingly condemned President Trump for his picture in front of St. John's Church after the clearing of Lafayette Park in 2020? While the media falsely claimed the park was cleared out for the photo op, many criticized the photo with military and law enforcement officials as inappropriate. And the traitor himself, General Marxist Milley, apologize for being in the photo, declaring, get this, folks, and ponder the level of in-your-face hypocrisy. My presence in that moment and in that environment created a perception of the military involved in domestic politics, unquote. Well, yeah, kind of like his sellout to the communist Chinese and indicating he wouldn't follow a direct order of the president, but would, in fact, tip off his communist buddies if he was ever given nuclear launch orders. That certainly have the appearance of treason. Professor Turley then goes on to describe the hypocrisy of these people, although he doesn't use that term, noting that Millie said nothing about supplying not just the Marine Band, but Marines to stand directly behind the Biden Fuhrer at a purely political speech while he denounced his political opponents, not only as threats to democracy, but part of what he called a semi-fascist movement, I guess as opposed to the fully fascist movement on such bold, in-your-face, blood-red and Nazi blackness display. Those Marines, says Turley, stood at attention as the Biden Fuhrer declared, quote, Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. And then he adds parenthetically, apparently nothing says you're against fascism as much as labeling your political opponents enemies of the state with Marines on either side of you. 
No doubt about it, he continues, the use of Marines would certainly seem to create, quote, a perception of the military involved in domestic politics. Moreover, the message clearly sent to other military personnel, particularly other Marines, is that support for the president's opponents is considered, well, exactly what it is. You'd have to be stupid to miss the message, a threat to the Constitutional Republic. And ironically, none of the people either drinking that Kool-Aid or pushing it have a clue what a Constitutional Republic really even is. Remember, folks, they've always hated it. They say it's our democracy. Moving right on up the hypocrisy scale, Turley points out that the WAPO, or Washington Post, previously objected, well, when it was that other guy, you know, the enemy of the state, to the use of the Marine Band at the White House when President Trump was even viewed as giving a political speech. During the Trump administration, he says others joined such criticism, including members of Congress and, (laughs) get this, public interest groups. Alice Hunt Friend, a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, told the WAPO that the use of the band was a big violation when Trump did it, since, quote, Americans who see uniformed military personnel at partisan political functions may assume the military has a partisan identity. Presidents running for election always have to take extra care to keep their military aides out of their campaign activities. And thus far, at least, notes Professor Turley, these same voices are silent when it comes to the Biden Fuhrer's use of these same Marines for a clearly highly partisan and divisive speech. And that, folks, is to put it mildly, what he was really doing was a not even remotely veiled threat. We're declaring war war on you. Oh, remember how we want to take your guns? And how we reminded real Americans just a day or so earlier, you don't dare fight the United States military because you don't have F-15s? Well, he said on his blood-red stage from the gates of hell, this is what I have. So don't you dare consider resistance to what's coming your way. Yeah, resistance is futile. And he should next time maybe have a few thousand fully armed IRS agents flanking him just to make sure they don't miss the point. And for those brave right-wing Americans who say it's all about keeping America, keeping America's independent and safe, if you want to fight against the country, you need an F-15. You need something a little more than a gun. Something I got. Look right here on this blood-red stage, and you won't be allowed to have it. We'll close today with a better late than ever story, and the far left is having a hissy fit just thinking about it. Donald Trump, on his Truth Social earlier this week, tweeted the following. So now it comes out conclusively that the FBI buried the Hunter Biden laptop story before the election, knowing that if they didn't, Trump would have easily won the 2020 presidential election, said the duly elected president, calling it, quote, massive fraud and election interference at a level never seen before in our country, whereupon he went on to describe a remedy. Listen to this, folks. Declare the rightful winner, or this would be the minimal solution, declare that the 2020 election was irreparably compromised and have a new election immediately. It does certainly look like things are coming to a head. And you know that that means they're going to have to either arrest, indict, and if they get their way at least, probably kill this guy. Or America may just wake up and realize we have been had on every front and really, really big time. But at least some are starting to get it. 